Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Barton, Washington. Today is Tuesday, February 21st. And here are some of the stories we are covering with four more days before Nigeria's presidential elections. Three candidates stand out. Those who left, even the young people who are today living, they'll come back. Nigerians are prepared to come back if they can find that they have a country to go back to. Sierra Leone's opposition All People's Congress Party has chosen its standard bearer for the country's June presidential election, President Biden, to speak in Poland on U.S. efforts to support Ukraine. Former President Jimmy Carter enters hospice care. We'll visit one of our interviews with him. The African Union tells countries in transition to respect agreed-upon timetables towards constitutional order. Mali and Guinea and Burkina Faso are going to be suspended until a clear understanding is made between ECOWAS and those countries about the transition in those countries. And the United Nations appeals for aid to fight cholera outbreak in Malawi. Those stories plus our Black History Month facts of the day are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Three top contenders are competing to take over from Nigeria's President Muhammadu Buhari in a battle that pits the old guard against a third candidate who is seeking to harness anger among young Nigerians. David Doyle has more. Nigeria will elect a new president on February 25th. There are 18 candidates to take over from Muhammadu Buhari, but just three considered to be top contenders. They are in a battle that pits the old guard against a third-party candidate, seeking to upset the established political order. So who are they? Bola Tanubu is the flag-bearer for the ruling All Progressives Congress, a party he helped form with Buhari a decade ago. Nicknamed the Godfather of Lagos, the 70-year-old is the influential former governor of Nigeria's most populous city. Over the years, Tanubu has forged religious, political and ethnic alliances across the country. But he has also been followed by allegations of corruption, which he rejects. We will create wealth. We will turn Nigeria hand. It will be our Eldorado. Tanubu aims to continue Buhari-era policies like building public infrastructure. He also wants to end a costly fuel subsidy and channel the money to agricultural and social welfare programs, as well as expanding the military. He is an ethnic Yoruba and a Muslim, and has departed from the established norm by selecting a running mate from the same religion. Nigeria's main opposition party is fielding Atiku Abubakar. It's the 76-year-old former vice president's third attempt. He lost to Buhari in 2019. Like Tanubu, Atiku has been dogged by allegations of corruption, which he has dismissed as baseless. Every part of this country will be given a sense of belonging. No part will be sidelined. No part will be marginalized. Atiku plans to privatize the state oil company and ensure a greater role for the private sector in the economy. He also wants to liberalize the exchange rate and provide more equipment to the military. A northern Muslim from the Fulani ethnic group, he has selected a Christian governor from the oil-producing Delta state as his running mate. That points to a strategy of generating support in the largely Christian south. 
Looking to upset the established order is Peter Obi. The 61-year-old former banker and governor says he wants to build a new Nigeria. Those who left, even the young people who are today living, they'll come back. We want to bring them back. Nigerians are prepared to come back if they can find that they have a country to go back to. His policies include tripling power generation and better funding for the military. He wants to gradually wean Nigeria off its reliance on oil by ramping up agricultural output and exports. Obi is a Christian from the Igbo tribe in the volatile southeast. His running mate is an economist and former senator from the northern Kaduna state. Obi has generated a substantial buzz among young Nigerians as he seeks to harness their anger against the status quo. That was Reuters' David Doyle reporting. In Sierra Leone, the opposition All-People's Congress Party, APC, has chosen a standard bearer to challenge incumbent President Julius Madabio for the country's June presidential election. Yes, Amura Kamara, the man who came in second in the last presidential election in 2018. Sidi Yaya Tunis is the National Publicity Secretary of the Opposition All-People's Congress Party of Sierra Leone. He tells me that Kamara won by a wide margin among other contestants and that he's looking to take on President Bio for the second time. The delegates of the All People's Congress who assembled in Makini elected Dr. Samura Kamara overwhelmingly as the presidential candidate for the June 24, 2023 presidential elections. 1,382 delegates elected Dr. Samura Kamara over the 17 other aspirants that ran for that particular position with him in McKinney. So this June election 2023 is going to be probably a rerun of the 2018 election where Mr. Kamara came second to current President Madabio. Certainly, yes, uh, it will be a rerun. We don't know if other political parties will field in candidates that will, you know, increase the number of um, contestants that will have to run against President Julius Madabio. But as it is now, the main opposition, All People's Congress has um, elected Dr. Samura Kamara. So it will be like a repeat of the 2018 presidential election when Dr. Samara Kamara and now President Julius Madabiu were the main contenders. There were some allegations of uh, corruption made against him. How do you see the campaign when it starts? I mean, did he say anything at all about the, those, those allegations? I mean, Dr. Samara Kamara has maintained his innocence since the allegations were first brought against him by the Anti-Corruption Commission over two years ago. And those of us who have been following the case closely in court seem to agree with him because uh, we have yet to see real evidence pointing at him as far as it relates to the matter that he was alleged to have been involved in as far as it relates to corruption. What will your party be running on against the incumbent? I mean, we'll pretty much be running on the legacy of former President Anes by Koroma and also what Dr. Samara Kamara himself 
has uh, laid out as far as you know addressing the economic issues of the country the high rates of corruption and you know embezzlement by the current administration how we can turn around you know and ensure that we have a stabilized foreign exchange to increase the value of the leon and also address issues of um, you know the bloated wage bill that we continue to see under this administration and address issues of human rights abuses and also issues of uh, tribalism, nepotism and division that have been created by this current administration. It's always a pleasure to speak with you and thank you very much. Thanks for having me, James. Always a pleasure. Sidi Yaya Tunis is the National Publicity Secretary of the Opposition All People's Congress Party of Sierra Leone. You are speaking with me from the capital, Freetown. The African Union Summit held over the weekend in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa, addressed many issues afflicting the continent. But as in past meetings, the issue of peace and security and its impact on governance continues to challenge the continental body. The leaders expressed concern over what they call persistent conflict, terrorism, and violent extremism on the continent and called for collective approaches to security. They called on countries in transition like Guinea and Mali to respect agreed upon timetables towards the swift restoration of constitutional order. Political analyst Ibrahim Khan is in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa. He explained to me why the African Union decided to maintain the suspension of Burkina Faso, Guinea, Mali, and Sudan. I think the, the conclusion was Mali and Guinea and Burkina Faso was going to be suspended. The sanction cannot be lifted until a clear understanding is made between ECOWAS and those countries about not only the duration of the, the transition, but the step that they need to take to really make sure that the transition is reached in those countries. And here, the responsibility was given to ECOWAS because ECOWAS met at the level of head of state to take those decisions because AU functions with the principle of subsidiarity. It's for the region to make the decision, and if the region cannot make or is unable to make a decision, the continent will take. That's the first reason. The second reason is that AU, unlike ECOWAS, doesn't have a regime of sanction. It has a regime of suspension. AU can only suspend, but AU generally doesn't have a regime of sanction. ECOWAS has a regime of sanction. It seems to me this summit, much of the time there was spent with the peace and security. In the Sahel region and the Lake Chad region, the African leaders seem to be very concerned about the rise in terrorist activities in these areas. Well, it's the reality of our continent. You know, uh, the report that the commission made to the summit about uh, the peace and security situation on the continent, he employed the word shocking. The reality of the continent in terms of peace and security is shocking. And what makes you better understand that shock is that an evaluation of the first 10 years of uh, the Agenda 2063, which is now the AU uh, guide on anything that member states have to do to really hope to get to a kind of integration and development of the different countries. That report said that 76% of the resources 
utilized the last 10 years for the development of the continent was dedicated to peace and security. It tells you about the situation of the continent. Ibrahima, it seems to me the African Union has placed a lot of trust in the regional organization, particularly as it pertains to the conflict in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Yes, they have done that because what happened, you know, for the first time in many years, the East African community has deployed soldiers at the border between Rwanda and the DRC to deal with the situation created by the M23. And apart from doing that, they decided to really organize a meeting during which Kagame, Kisekedi, and all the other actors that are involved in this crisis to sit down and to talk about the situation. And it was done, as I said earlier, at two levels. One is among the East African only, and two, after that, among the 15 members of the Peace and Security Council. Before I let you go, we talked earlier about the situation with Mali and Guinea. What happens now with the transition there? Yes, everything is frozen in Guinea. Frozen because the government doesn't want to talk to the real actors on the ground. The government wants to choose who to talk to. Two, the government is not really interested in uh, really designing the transition, designing the time frame for the 24 months, because they accepted already that they will stay only for 24 months. Ibrahim Khan is a Senegalese political analyst. He was speaking with us from the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. I'm James Barton, Washington. Today is Tuesday, February 21st. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And still to come, our Black History Month facts of the day. In Kiev, Ukraine, on Monday, the President's Day holiday in America, U.S. leader Joe Biden announced additional military support for the embattled nation. Biden heads to Poland on Tuesday, where he will discuss U.S. efforts to relay support for Ukraine in its conflict with Russia. Reporter Marislava Gongazi has the story from Warsaw. Since the start of the Russians' war on Ukraine on February 24, 2022, Poland has become a key player in confronting Moscow's aggression and indispensable U.S. partner in the region. Over 7 million Ukrainians have crossed the Polish border as refugees and 1 million are temporarily settled here. One year later, President Biden will speak at the Royal Castle in Warsaw to highlight U.S. efforts to relay support for Ukraine. Monday, President's Day, he spent in Kyiv, the city that, as he said, stole his heart. He has announced additional delivery of military supply for Ukraine, as well as additional sanctions against elite and companies who are participating in Russia's war machine. He emphasized that uh, over the last year, the United States has built a coalition of nations from the Atlantic to the Pacific to help defend Ukraine with unprecedented military, economic and humanitarian supply. A year ago, the world thought Kyiv would fall. One year later, Kyiv stands and Ukraine stands. Democracy stands, said President Biden. Muroslava Gongadze, VOA News, Warsaw. 
The Atlanta-based nonprofit Carter Center announced 98-year-old former U.S. President Jimmy Carter is receiving hospice care at his home in Plains, Georgia. Viewers Ken Fairbaugh has more. Buffalo, New York native Suzanne Taylor says former President Jimmy Carter's declining health wasn't a surprise to her, but the announcement he was entering hospice care came as a shock. I have to admit that I cried at breakfast. That was a little bit of a wake-up call to me, that we really are uh, going to lose him at some point. Between 2006 and 2019, Taylor was among hundreds of volunteers working alongside Carter and his wife, Rosalind, on their annual Habitat for Humanity work project, building homes around the world for those in need. So many people really appreciate him. He's had such an impact, and it's going to be so hard to uh, close that chapter. It was sad because he has led such an epic American life. Jonathan Alter spent five years writing a biography about Jimmy Carter titled His Very Best that allowed him to interview and observe the former president before his health declined. But when you take stock of his life, he won at life. 98 years, longest lived president. Married for close to 77 years. After losing the presidency in a resounding defeat in 1980, Alter believes Carter's increased popularity came through his volunteerism with Habitat for Humanity, his efforts to promote peace and fight neglected tropical diseases through the programs of the Carter Center, and as the voice of a seasoned politician and elder statesman. This is a guy who, even though he was in business and thought about the bottom line plenty in the years before he was president, spent most of his life thinking about what, what could he do to improve the lives of other people. And that's still extraordinarily rare. Carter's popularity also increased while traveling the country, autographing and promoting dozens of books he wrote and by hosting crowds at his small church in Plains, Georgia, during his Sunday school lessons, where, one day after the announcement of his decision to enter hospice care, Carter's niece, Kim Fuller, led the congregation in prayer. I think at this time in all of our lives, and in the lives of those that we love very much who are going through this today and will be going through it, that maybe if we think about it, it maybe it's time to pass the baton. Who'll pick it up? I have no clue. I don't know. Because this baton's going to be a really big one. Rosalind and Jimmy are accessible and gracious, and people feel like they really got to know him. Which is why Taylor believes the news of his deteriorating health is that much harder for many to accept. So I think his accessibility has uh, created a bond with a lot of Americans that most presidents don't have. Kane Fairbaugh, VOA News, Chicago. The United Nations in Malawi has launched an urgent appeal for aid to deal with the impact of a record cholera outbreak that has so far killed nearly 1,450 people and infected 45,000. Local health experts say if urgent action isn't taken to scale up the response, the number of cases could double in the next few months. Lamek Masina reports from Blantyre, Malawi. The UN says the flash appeal seeks to raise about 45.3 million US dollars to provide life-saving aid to thousands of people in Malawi devastated by cholera outbreak. 
in a statement released Monday, the UN says the appeal aims to assist 4 million people in Malawi, including 56,000 refugees and asylum seekers who are at the highest risk in the outbreak. The current cholera outbreak started in March last year and has spread to all 29 districts of Malawi. Rebecca Adadonto is the United Nations resident coordinator in Malawi. She told reporters Monday that more assistance is needed to stop the outbreak. So much work has been done, but a lot more needs to be done. We have focused on health, we have focused on wash. The two are very important, but there are also other sectors like nutrition, protection, like even logistics, because we know that we need to be able to move supplies from one point to the other. Adadonto said the needed assistance would complement what various donor partners have already contributed. The UN itself already has uh, mobilized close to $10 million already. You had uh, the EU, you had the UK right here saying they had already contributed over 500,000 euros for the EU and also over 500,000 pounds for the UK. Even the government of Malawi is already on the ground, is already contributing. Local media have reported that Malawi needs about an additional 40 million US dollars for its national plan on cholera response. Cases of cholera in Malawi have increased since the beginning of January, worsening the country's largest outbreak in the past two decades. Malawian President Razalas Chakwera said last week when he launched a national anti-cholera campaign that the country's health facilities were recording between 500 to 600 cholera cases every day. The UN said that health experts have warned that Malawi could record between 64,000 and 100,000 more cases of cholera within the next three months unless urgent action is taken to scale up the response. Lamik Masina for VOA News, Blanta, Malawi. And here now are some African-American and African history facts for today, February 21st. On this day, 1936, Barbara Jordan was born in Houston, Texas. She became the first African-American woman to be elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. Jordan passed away January 17, 1996. Also on this day in 1965, Malcolm X was assassinated by three black men while he was speaking in Harlem, New York City. Malcolm was born in Omaha, Nebraska. In 1925, his name at birth was Malcolm Leto, but he changed his last name to the letter X after he became a member of the Nation of Islam. Like many black Muslims then, Malcolm believed that the letter X stood for the true African name of each African American who was taken from Africa by slavery. On this day in 1940, one of the civil rights pioneers, John Lewis, was born in Troy, Alabama. His family members were sharecroppers, but Lewis overcame poverty and political marginalization to educate himself. In 1963, Lewis was elected president of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or the SNCC. In 1986, Lewis was elected to the U.S. Congress. He died July 17, 2020, in Atlanta, Georgia. 
Today in Black History, we want to tell you about Garrett Augustus Morgan, one of the most successful African-American inventors born in the last quarter of the 19th century to former slaves. Garrett A. Morgan was only formally educated to a sixth grade level. Luckily, like many great inventors, Morgan had an innate mechanical mind that enabled him to solve problems. In 1914, Morgan received a patent for the first gas mask invention, but it was not until two years later that the idea really took off. Gary Morgan also invented the traffic signal to help save lives. After receiving a patent in 1923, the rights to the invention were eventually purchased by General Electric. And that's it for this Tuesday, February 21st edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending your morning with us. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa crew, I am James Barton Washington, wishing you will have an amazing Tuesday. Hey, sports fans, brighten your day by tuning into the sunny side of sports Monday through Friday at 1630 and 1830 UTC. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny and on Twitter at VOA Sunny Sports. Or check out the blog at blogs.voanews.com forward slash sunny. It's the sunny side of sports right here on The Voice of America.